Amen. Church, let's pray. Father, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. What a stunning statement that is. That the word would become flesh and dwell among us. God himself become a man. Fully God, yet still fully man. To sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And to go to the cross on our behalf to pay the penalty that we deserved. Father, so unworthy of this gift, so unworthy of this grace. And yet now you say, come. You bid us to come and seek your face. And through Jesus Christ, that is possible. Who are we, O Lord, for such a gift? Who are we? Not to us, not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. Father, right now I pray that as we open your word, we would eagerly, quickly humble ourselves under your word today under its authority today father i pray we we would not reel back in pride but in humility say lord teach me change me god help me to love you more help me to be more like you today and that each of us here in this place as we set our hearts to seek your face god would be able to leave here saying truly i just met with jesus i don't want to be the same even if i could be i don't want to go back to the way i was an hour ago father would you please in your mercy stir up hearts of worship, of reverence, and recognition of who you are today. Oh, Lord, may it be so. This is what you are zealous for. Find a church that is zealous for you to go there. I love you, Father. Be with my mouth. Guard it from error. Say what you want to say and have your way among your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. And the title of this morning's message is God's Zeal for His House. God's Zeal for His House. And, and if you do not have a Bible in front of you, our ushers are coming forward right now. Just put up your hand. We would love to put a copy of God's Word in your lap so you can follow along in the text, and if you do not have a copy of God's Word at home, then please take that with you as our free gift to you so you can continue to study and grow in the Lord at home. John chapter 2, 12 to 22, God's zeal for his house. And while you're turning there, uh, just a question for you loved ones, it is this, what are you passionate, what are you zealous about? If I were to come and do a survey, and I say, what are you passionate about? What are you zealous about? What are some things that would come to mind for you? Well, to help you answer this question, we got to look at what the term zeal means when God uses it. And in our text today, he uses it. The Greek word for zeal is zealos, and it means this, hot enough to boil. Does anything get you boiling? Does anything get you hot enough to boil? Having a passion for embracing, defending, and pursuing something. There is zeal as God defines it. So what is that for you? 
What do you boil hot for? What are you passionate about embracing, defending, and pursuing? Maybe for some of us here, uh, it's our job. I am super passionate about my job. I'm going to pursue that job. I'm going to work all hours. I'm going to burn the candle at both ends. I am just passionate and zealous about that job. Maybe for some of us, it's our family. I will defend my family to no end. I will do all I can to pour into my family, to see my children, my spouse, even maybe my extended family cared for, provided for. Maybe some of us here um, are passionate about sports and entertainment. I'm going to paint my face and I'm not going to wear any shirt in minus 20 degree weather because I'm painted as a football player and I'm going to scream and wait in line for three hours to get into the stadium. Pretty zealous. Pretty zealous there. I'm passionate about my Netflix, my show. I'm passionate about my Facebook account. Maybe this, I'm passionate about money. How much is enough? A little bit more. I'm passionate about money, earning, being secure, getting a full bank account. Maybe this, I'm passionate about church. I'm passionate about the Lord. See, here's what we have to realize, loved ones. Jesus Christ is passionate about something too. You know what it is? His church. His church and our worship of him in it. He's zealous for his church and our worship of a minute. Because, because here's the truth. The church is the most precious thing in the sight of God. The church, the bride of Jesus Christ, who he is forming and molding and sanctifying to meet him on the wedding day, is the most passionate thing in the sight of God. He is consumed as we will see today, with zeal for it and to show his glory in it through the worship of his people. He is zealous for our worship. And so today, we get a picture of the zeal or passion that Christ has for his church and the worship he desires to receive to it. I'm just not talking singing here. That's one way to worship. I'm talking about how we handle God's word He's zealous about this word going forward so much that Jeremiah 1 says he's watching over this word to perform it right now. He's zealous in how we pray. He's zealous in how we serve. I was just with our Harvest Kids team, love them so much, leading them in devotions this morning. God is zealous for the service that's going on in this church. Not out of some duty of, oh, I gotta do it again. He's like, really? How about in reverence? How about in recognition of who I am? He's zealous about it. And we get a glimpse of that today. But you say, wait a second, why why is this so important that God would devote an entire section of this text and many others to this? Because there's a problem, loved ones, and it is this. Even though Jesus Christ is passionate about his church, increasing numbers of so-called churches are passionless about him. Let me say it again. The problem is this. Even though Jesus Christ is consumed with passion for his church, an increasing number of churches are more and more passionless about him. And so increasingly we see this. How do we know? What does this look like? Worship that upholds the holiness of God is being replaced with upholding the desires of man. 
worship through God's word, the preaching of God's word, the exhortation of God's word is being replaced with the peddling of God's word, itching ears. What does, what does man want to hear instead of what does God want said to his church? Reverence for God. Reverence, that is, a fear of the Lord, an increasing, deepening honor, respect, and love for the Lord is being replaced with pursuing the relevance with man. Worshiping in the fear of God is being replaced with flippancy before him. And so the result is people living in deception, entire churches, and the glory and power of God being absent in them and in the lives of those who approach him this way. And so that begs the question, if God is zealous for his church, consumed, boiling hot with passion for his church to worship him as he requires and to show his glory through it, how does, how does he desire to worship, us to worship him? Well, here in the text, we see two postures of worship, two postures of worship that God requires from us if he is to show his glory, power, and presence in his church through our worship of him. We see two worship postures that God is zealous for in his church. To honor the authority of God's word, let's stand as we read it together. John chapter 2 Verses 12 to 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum, that is Jesus, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip, listen to this, look at this zeal. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Zeal for God's house will consume me. See, God is zealous for his church to worship him with reverence. Posture number one, reverence. Why? Because he is holy. He is holy. And the key question that underlies this point is this. Am I approaching God in worship with reverence or flippancy? Am I approaching him with reverence or flippancy? You notice here in verses 12 to 17, you'll see in in the first part of the verse there, it says, uh, verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, let's get our context. We've got to read the Bible in context. Recall, it's approximately 27 AD right now. Okay, 27 AD, Jesus' public ministry has just begun. That's why it says, after this, he's referring to the first public sign that he has given, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, by turning the water into wine at Capernaum. And so he says, now after this, so his public ministry's begun, and, and look what it says. He travels to Capernaum with his mother, with his brothers, 
Five disciples. Now, now, where is Capernaum? Okay, you remember, you see on the map. So there's Cana with the black circle. That's where he just performed the miracle at that wedding. And now here's Capernaum. Capernaum is about 16 miles northeast of Cana on the Sea of Galilee. And eventually, Capernaum, as we find out in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, becomes Jesus' home base for ministry. All right, eventually. But he's traveling there. Now, just imagine this. You're his brothers, you're his mom, and you're his disciples. You've got 16 miles to walk with him after you have literally just seen him take no wine and make 907 bottles of it. What are you talking about? It just says, after this, they went down to Capernaum. After this, like, if I'm his brother, like, think about, remember, these were real people, loved ones. You've just seen this miracle happen, and you're not even sure who your brother is fully yet. And you're just what, like, what do you say? What do you say? Like, so, bro, you do that often? Like, what do you say? Like, honestly, it's amazing. Don't forget these were real people. Like, honestly, like, yeah, I just started with creation and then just bled over into wine. Like, are you kidding? I love that. I love the humor there. Don't miss the transition statement. All right? I imagine that conversation. But then in verse 13, we see that he's going to Jerusalem because it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so here he is in Capernaum. Now let's look at where Jerusalem is from here. Next map. So there's Capernaum right there. Cana, Capernaum. Next one, guys. There's Jerusalem in the white circle. So he's traveling now from Capernaum down to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, here's what we have to understand. This is the first time the Passover is mentioned in the book of John, and he will mention three Passovers throughout this book. The last being the one, of course, the crucifixion of Christ. Right, so the first of three. Now, what, what's, so, what's the big deal about the Passover? Why would he go up? Well, the Passover was the biggest of the three major Jewish festivals or feasts each year. It was the biggest, all right? And it lasted for seven to eight days. It still does today, okay? Lasted for seven to eight days, and its purpose was to celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Remember, when the angel of God passed over the houses of the Israelites as they were slaves in Egypt because they had put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it passed by and then went on and killed the firstborn of every Egyptian, which ultimately led to Pharaoh releasing the Israelites. That's why they call it the Passover. So this is what they celebrate. Now, you can read all about that, by the way, in Exodus 12, 21 to 50. If you want more on that. But here, Jews from all over Israel and the Roman Empire itself flocked to Jerusalem for this festival. All right? Marked on the calendar, every Jewish male over 12 made the pilgrimage for it. Doesn't matter where you're from. Every Jewish male over 12. And now you see here in verse 14, Jesus and his disciples arrive in the temple, and this sets up the showdown of the first major conflict with the Jewish leaders, and of course it's a worship war. It sets up the showdown for the first major conflict. Now, he gets in there in the temple, verse 14, now let's look at what the temple is. You see a picture of the temple here. This was not the temple that King Solomon built previously. That was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. This was the temple of Herod, 
which was started to be constructed in 20 BC when King Herod started to rule over Jerusalem. And so it's 20 BC, now do the math, it's 27 AD, so it's been going for about 46 years, because you don't count year zero, by the way. So it's 46 years, and it's not finished yet. Herod's reconstructing it, so it's got this much done so far. And it wouldn't be completed fully until AD 63. And today, today's Western Wall, you ever heard of the Wailing Wall in Israel? It is the Western Wall of this temple, the outer court. That's why they call it the Western Wall. Now, we have to understand the significance of this Herodian temple. This was the most sacred place. As you look at that, listen to this. This was the most sacred place in all of Israel. It was the central place for the worship of God. And it signified, most importantly, God's presence and dwelling place among his people. Yet when Jesus gets there, keep that picture up, yet when Jesus gets there, he enters the temple courtyards of the Gentiles. Now, you see, so you've got the temple proper right in the middle there. You see all that empty space kind of in the wall, but yet the empty space on either side. That was called the court of the Gentiles, where if you were not Jewish, that is where you needed to worship. The Jews could go into the inner temple courtyard, but the Gentiles, anyone who's not a Jew, had to stay out there. That's where they would offer their prayers. That's where they would offer their worship. And that's where... The showdown's about to take place in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus and his disciples walk in and they see that merchants are selling animals and using this sacred area as a currency exchange. The money changers. Look at that verse 14 where it says he saw them selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. The word selling there means this. They were bartering. It's like a marketplace. They were peddling sacrifices for sale. These men were selling animals that God had said were acceptable in the Old Testament for sacrifice. Pigeons, oxen, sheep, all, all the animals he said were okay in the Old Testament, but they're selling them, so why? Why would they do this? In the sacred area, in the court of the Gentiles. Why? So that Jewish pilgrims, get this, they didn't have to bring their own animals from where they were traveling from. And they could sacrifice and travel all all the distance with them. They, you don't have to bring your own animal. Just buy one in the courtyard to sacrifice. Why would you waste time? Why would you sacrifice all your energy bringing your own? Now, the money changers, what's up with them? Well, every Jewish male over 20 years old had to pay what's called a temple tax. They had to keep the temple. They had to upkeep it, right? And so every Jewish male, 20 years plus, had to pay a temple tax, which was half a shekel. Now, the money changers were just currency exchange, because think about it. If you've got people, Jews, coming from all over the world, the Roman Empire, they've got different currency. And so they had to exchange it into shekels. And so just like today, you take your money to a currency exchange, they take a profit off that and give you your half a shekel so you can pay your temple tax and then go offer your sacrifice. That's what's happening here. Because the first thing people would do when they'd get to the Passover is they would go, pay the temple tax, and then immediately offer their sacrifice. That's what they would do. But in response to this, look at Jesus enters that courtyard. Can you just picture this? Jesus enters that courtyard, and verses 15 and 16, we see this. Jesus 
sees it and is filled with zeal. Remember, zeal means to boil hot. Jesus starts to boil hot here. Not in some sinful anger, but in a righteous anger. We like to think we boil with righteous anger. Hey, guess what? Our anger is not righteous. Just letting you know. Jesus is boiling hot with a righteous anger for God's house and the true and pure worship that needed to be given in it. And so what does he do? He makes a whip of cords, drives out all the men and animals. Can you just see that chaos going on here? He's packed with thousands of people, flipping tables, whipping people, whipping animals, forcefully with a righteous anger, and he declares this, take these away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now the word trade there, in verse 16 means this, don't make it a marketplace. Don't make it a house of, ready for this, consumerism. Do not make my house a house about all that you can get. Jesus is pretty zealous about this even today. Do not make my house a house of consumerism. When they see and they hear this, the disciples are reminded of Psalm 69.9. That is verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, zealous, for your house will consume me. And in Psalm 69.9, King David prophetically declared that zeal for God's house would consume me. Now, King David was zealous for the house of the Lord, and he said this as he defended the pure worship of God in Israel. And he says it prophetically here about Jesus Christ. See, Jesus would not tolerate irreverence to God. He didn't then, he will not today. He will not tolerate irreverence to God his Father in worship. And some of you, some of us here may ask, well, what, honestly, what drove Jesus to be so hot? Like, what is the big deal? Well, here's what we must understand. You'll see, I love how Matt Carter, the commentator, put this. You'll see it on the screen. The house, the temple, was built to display God's glory. But the sounds of confession, that is worship, have been replaced with the sounds of commerce. Confession replaced with commerce. Gone are silent prayers to God. They have been exchanged for the angry chorus of men. That describes too many of our churches today, loved ones. The angry chorus of men haggling over the price of bulls and sheep. The cooing of doves and the stink of manure now occupy, this is the Gentile court, don't forget, now occupy the place that used to be reserved for men to humble themselves and worship God. They have twisted the purpose of the temple. The holiness and gravity of worship have been lost. Would that describe the church today? The holiness and gravity of worship is being lost. People have forgotten why they came to the temple in the first place. They have trivialized the worship of God. Loved ones, look around today. Look around today. You see, this church is almost full. But think about this. Look around the church today, across our nation, across this world. The church, the house of God, the people of God, 
is to be the place where God's glory is displayed the most. Yet, yet, commerce, convenience, consumerism, and flippancy have replaced awe, confession, sacrifice, and reverence in our worship to our holy God. The materialistic, consumeristic mindset of give me what I want, how I want it, when I want it, has invaded God's house today. In personally, as us as temples of the, of the Lord, but corporately in the church as temple of the Lord. This materialistic mindset of I want to worship God on my terms. You don't think God is zealous for true worship from his church? See, because, here's, here's a quote from Kent Hughes. I was really struck with this week. You'll see it on the screen. The way we worship reveals what we truly think about God. The way we worship reveals what we truly think about God. Think of this, loved ones. Do I truly believe that a holy God is zealous for and worthy to be approached in reverence, in awe, in humility, in my worship of him? Do I honestly believe that? That he is worthy to be worshipped that way? Am I that zealous for it? Or... Do I think I can approach him flippantly on my terms? The way I want, when I want, just how I want, when it's convenient, when it doesn't cost much. Hey, question, question, loved ones. So sobered in my own life with this this week. How are you approaching God in worship? With reverence or flippancy? Ask yourself the question, write that down. How am I approaching God in worship? Not just on a Sunday morning, loved ones. But in the day-to-day, worship is a lifestyle. How am I approaching God in worship? With flippancy or reverence? Here, corporately, in the house of God, together this morning. How am I approaching him when I serve? Am I complaining? Or am I approaching him in reverence? To say, this is a privilege. That My God is holy. My God is desiring and zealous for me to worship him, getting down on the floor with those kids, setting up that chair with reverence for him, not flippancy of what I want. What about when you come to small groups? How are we worshiping God in our small groups? With reverence or I'll just kick it back and maybe if I meet with Jesus, I'm okay. How are we worshiping? God is zealous for our reverence of him. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know? Like, what are some of the symptoms of approaching God in worship with flippancy that we see here in this text? Or am I approaching him with reverence? Well, let's look. You see it on the screen. Flippancy or reverence? Okay, well, here you go. I am approaching God with flippancy when I complain about worship. I complain about it. The lights are too bright. We don't sing any new songs. Get some more songs on your song list. Keep up with the Joneses, church. I complain about my serving in worship to him. 
I've got to do this again. got to wake up early. My giving? I don't need to give to God's church. I love Jesus, just not his church. I approach it flippantly. I complain about worship. How do we know we're approaching in reverence? Here it is. I give in worship. I give in worship. The temple merchants were really good complainers, bartering back and forth. But what God is looking for in reverence and worship to him is what we give in worship. Myself, my time, my talent, my treasure because he's a holy God and I don't even deserve the privilege of putting on a Harvest Kids shirt today. I don't even deserve the privilege to give back a portion of what God has given me. I do not deserve the privilege to come here at 6.30 and set up a chair. I do not deserve the privilege to raise my hands and say how great thou art. But by the blood of Jesus Christ... How do we know this? Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, 5. I love this text. Isaiah, he sees the glory of God in the temple and he says, woe is me. Not this. Whoa, cool Jesus. You're like my homie. He says, woe is me for I am lost. See, he sees himself rightly compared to the holiness of God. He says, woe is me for I'm lost for I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm a sinner. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. Reverence, awe, holiness, the Lord of hosts. Reverent worship. At that point, he says, here I am, send me right after this. It doesn't matter what you ask me to do. It doesn't matter how early I need to come in. It doesn't matter. Here I am, send me. Because he sees the holiness of God in light of who he is and knows he is not deserving of that privilege but by the grace of God, the mercy of God. Flippancy complains about worship, reverence, confesses in worship, confesses in worship, awe at his holiness. How do we know? How do we know this? Okay, number two. Flippancy complains, reverence confesses, flippancy consumes from worship. If I'm approaching God with flippancy, my mindset is consumerism. I will consume in worship. This is what the temple merchants were doing. They were consuming from other people's worship. Other people were coming to the temple to worship God, and the temple merchants were consuming from that. I'm going to take from those offerings they want to give, and I'm just going to take and take and take, not give. Because reverence in worship, approaching God in reverence, here it is, go, Gives, gives in worship. It doesn't take. It doesn't take. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to give my talents. I'm going to give my treasure. I'm not just going to let other people worship and I'm just going to benefit from it. I'm going to give in worship because this is what reverence does because I know I'm not worthy to even worship him. But by the grace of God. I'm going to jump in on that team. I'm going to do this. I'm not just going to consume from others' worship in serving. How about this? It's number three. Flippancy complains about worship. Reverence confesses in worship. I love this. First Chronicles 16, 29. Look what David says here. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. That is, worship the Lord. Bring an offering. There's nothing there about take an offering. Bring the offering, loved one. Bring the offering and come before him in your worship. Worship the Lord, and there it is again, in the splendor of his holiness, the awe, the reverence 
for the Lord because he is holy and you and I are not. Flippancy complains, reverence confesses. Flippancy consumes, reverence gives. Number three, if I'm approaching God in flippancy, and this one underlies all the rest, it means this. Worship is about convenience for me. Worship is about convenience for me. I'm going to worship when I want, how I want. I'm going to make sure it's easy. That's what the temple merchants did. They're like, we're just going to make it easy for everybody. We're just going to go into the temple. Did you know something interesting? Before this moment right here, the temple merchants and the, the seller of the sacrificial animals, they would sell them on the Mount of Olives because they didn't want to desecrate the holy area. But you see what happens? Little compromise after compromise, pretty soon they're just right in the court. That's what happens when it goes unchecked. I'm just going to make it convenient. I'll worship God when it's convenient, when that schedule lines up with my complete one. I'm just going to, when it doesn't call me out of my comfort zone. As we said to our servant leadership team at training last night, the comfort zone is the dead zone for worship to God, loved ones. I'm just going to do that and wait. No sacrifice. I want it easy. If I don't have the opportunity to worship God with a latte in my hand, then I'm going somewhere that I can. Loved ones, I got, I got nothing against lattes. I think I had one this week. I think that's what you call it. I don't know, there's so much sugar in those things. I don't know. But the reality is this. If you're using that as the basis of where you pick and choose to worship, you have a reverence problem. I'm just going to go someplace where the worship leader wears skinny jeans all the time. Josh will not wear skinny jeans. Just letting you know. Okay, see, see? Listen, nothing wrong with skinny jeans. But, <laughs> but if that's what you're using to determine where you worship, you are approaching God with flippancy that needs to be repented of, loved one. It is not worship on your terms. He is zealous for worship on his See, because flippancy, worship is about convenience for me. But reverence, worship is about what it costs me. Worship is about what it costs me. I love 2 Samuel 24, 24, one of my favorite texts. King David says this. But the king said to Aruna, listen, he's the king. If anyone was entitled for a shortcut in worship, it was David. Okay, so he approaches this guy Aruna right after he takes his census and he knows he needs to repent from that. The Lord has punished him for that. He's coming to the place of repentance. He goes to the guy who's got the sheep and, he's, and the guy Aruna says, hey, hey, I'm just, you're the king. I'm just gonna give you the worship. Go ahead, I'll give you the bulls. And look what David says. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Here's the truth we get from this text today and right there. We see it all throughout scripture. True worship, pure worship that God is looking for and zealous for in his church always costs us. It always costs us. 
It may cost us our time. It may cost us our comfort. It may cost us our finances. It may cost us our talents and gifts and abilities as they are used for the glory of God. But true worship will always cost us. Understand this, loved ones. God is zealous for his church to worship him with reverence. He is holy. But if we are to worship God with reverence, we must worship him with recognition that he has all authority. If we are to worship God with reverence, we must must worship him with recognition. Final point today, that he has all authority. And the key question is this, am I submitting to him? Am I submitting to him? Look at verses 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, love this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Remember, we talked about that earlier, started in 20 BC. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, after hearing Jesus declare about how worship was to be given to God, my father's house won't be the house of trade. Now the Jews, which are the temple authorities, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they come up to him and they ask him for a sign to identify himself and establish by what authority he has the right to regulate the worshiping practices in the temple. In effect, they're saying, who do you think you are that you can tell us how to worship? That you can tell us we're supposed to worship you with reverence. Who do you think you are? And so they ask for this sign. They wanted some miracle on demand. Show us something spectacular, Jesus. Jesus is like, I'll show you a sign. Instead of giving them some physical sign, here's what he says. Jesus says the sign of his authority would be that if they destroyed this temple, he would raise it in three days. What temple? And you see in verse 20, obviously, the eyes of flesh do not see what the eyes of faith can. And so here they are, they say in response, the temple leaders, they're like, they don't recognize his authority and they don't believe in him because they think he's referring to the physical temple. You're gonna destroy the temple of Herod that's taken us 46 years to build and you're gonna raise it in three days? You're gonna tell us to destroy that and then you're gonna raise it in three days. But what we see, I love how John is so clear in his word. We see in verse 21, it says he's not referring to the physical temple in front of him. He's referring to the temple of his body. And then in verse 22, you notice John leaps forward. John leaps forward. He says this, when therefore he was raised from the dead. So now he's speaking in retrospective. He knows Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead at this point. And so he knows the final outcome. So now he's reflective statement on the end here. He says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember he had said this, because that's John himself. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, even Jesus' own disciples didn't fully believe in him until he was raised from the dead and they remembered what he had said here. And here's what Jesus was stating. He goes, you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Remember this. The temple was the place. Here, can you put the temple back on team, please? Thank you. The temple was the place where God's presence was manifested. 
the physical temple. Jesus was God himself in the flesh who manifested God to man. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This temple is a picture of Jesus Christ as the new temple, the presence of God manifested to man. But secondly, the temple that you see here was where people went to sacrifice and worship and sacrifice for their sin. Jesus, you see what he's saying here? Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice who came to earth as fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, and offered himself for the sins of the world for all time to pay the penalty for our sin that you and I deserve, paying it through his death on the cross and his resurrection three days. You destroy this temple, guys, because he knows what's coming. These probably were some of the guys sitting at his cross, laughing at him, mocking him. He says, you destroy this temple, the temple of God right here, the new temple, and you'll see it raised in three days. You'll see it. He's pointing to his crucifixion. He's pointing to his resurrection. Jesus was the new temple. This is the sign. He's giving them a sign right here. He goes, you want a sign? Let me tell you. This was the sign that he was the Messiah, God himself, who not only had the authority over the physical temple, he could tell them how worship was supposed to happen because of his authority, but he didn't just have authority over the physical temple, sorry, much greater, listen to this, but also had an even greater authority over sin and death itself. And he still does today. It is the recognizing of his authority that must humble us before him and fuel our worship of him. The recognition of the authority of Jesus Christ, the fact that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, humbles us in reverence in our worship of them. He is the king, he has all authority, he's exalted over all, and what he says goes. Not what you or I say. That needs to humble us in, our, in his presence if we are to worship him with reverence and recognition. Could sum that up with this. You'll see it on the screen. When we truly recognize the authority of God and how awesome he is and how we aren't worthy to be in his presence apart from Christ and how awesome the gift of our salvation is, here's the reality. We will worship with increasing reverence before God every time. In our worship of him, yes, corporately on Sundays and in small groups, but in the day-to-day, as you go to work, as you get up, as you parent your kids, as you're with your spouse, with your friends, whatever it is. Loved ones, we close with this. God is zealous for his church to worship him with reverence. He is holy. And with the recognition that he has all authority, not just over the worship he expects from his people, but authority over all heaven and earth. He's the king. So question, final question today is this. Are you submitting to Christ as your authority? If worship is to be a lifestyle in every part of our lives, are you submitting to the Lord in every part of your life as an act of worship to him? Where do you need to submit to him today? 
to grow in your worship, in your reverence, in your recognition today. If you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal savior, here, here it is for you, loved ones. This is where the rubber meets the road. Your first step is to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and has been risen from the dead, you will be saved. That temple that was destroyed was raised again three days later because he loves you. But will you receive him and submit to him? No matter what you've done, no one is too far gone for the power of the cross. And there is, here's the truth, there is no acceptable worship offered to God that is not through Jesus Christ. We cannot manufacture this on our own. If I just raise my hands high enough, I'll, I'll work. There is no acceptable worship offered to God if it's not through Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you are a follower of Christ, let me ask you this, loved ones. Where are you not submitting to Christ's authority over your life? Where? In your relationships, with your job, with your finances, maybe in your marriage. I want things my way. Maybe over your schedule, in your parenting, that pattern of sin that you're just letting go and and then flippantly approaching God in worship, thinking that he doesn't see it. He's a holy God. And Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. He gave his life for you and I not to sit in it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Where do you need to walk in that truth today? By the power of the Holy Spirit. What is the step of obedience that you've been avoiding God and not submitting to him that he's telling you to take? And what next step will you take today to get it right with him? Will you do it? Will you do it? He's zealous for our worship, loved one. Will you do it? Oh, may the glory of his name be the passion of this church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is so clear. I thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us on our own to try to figure out how to worship you, to try to strive on our own strength and effort. I thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel that makes true worship in reverence and recognition, in holiness and righteousness even possible. That we can approach the throne of grace with confidence day to day, here in the church, together, corporately, whatever it is. God, I pray you would look upon your house. This house would not be a house of trade. This house would not be filled with consumerism. This house would not be filled with commerce. Snippy divisions and anger and pettiness over what we want and our desires, but God, it would be filled with reverence for you, awe for you, love for you, desiring and hungering after you, God, for this is what you are zealous for in your church, and I pray I pray in your name that you would look upon this church and you would see a people that say, yes, Lord, get me there. I'm not there yet, but help me get there. I want to live in awe of you 
in my home, in my workplace, in the ch- I want to live in awe of you. And I recognize your authority, but God, I need your help. I can't do this alone. And thank you that through the gospel, you will never ask from us what you're not willing to do in us first. Oh, Lord, may the glory of your name be the passion of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.